Thanks be to God. So we are, as Rob mentioned, doing a series on the reasonableness of faith. The reasonableness of faith. And that is, uh, it's a good question to ask, is why are we doing that? And as I think Kyle and Lissy alluded to, the goal here is not to prepare you for these massive intellectual battles, but it's to prepare you when, if you're like me, you find yourself in the workplace and you feel that the culture around you is telling you that faith doesn't make sense. Or when you want to share with somebody and you think, well, they're going to think I'm crazy. They're going to think that I'm irrational, that I'm illogical, that my, my faith isn't grounded on anything. So we are doing this series not to convince you, because you wouldn't be here, I don't think, worshipping with us if you weren't convinced in Jesus Christ as the only way, but to help you feel confident in your faith when it's challenged by those who might suggest that it's unreasonable, and to give you confidence as you share it with other people, uh, thinking that they may think that you are irrational or illogical. Now, I had this experience in the workplace when I first started counseling at a counseling practice. I was hired by the agency uh, knowing that I was coming from a Christian worldview. So the manager knew that I had a strong faith. Uh, I was trained in, in clinical psychology, but I came from a Christian faith perspective. And as part of the interviewing, they, they worked out how that would work and everyone was comfortable with it. But not everybody in the agency knew that I was a Christian. And I was part of and being trained for a special team, a trauma team, where we would meet once a week and we would discuss and hand out the cases that we were doing. And as those cases were being handed out, we came across one intake package that talked about somebody who had had significant trauma but wanted to experience counseling from a Christian worldview. And the manager said at the time, David, this sounds like a good case for you to take on. This sounds like a good client for you to take on. Uh, and someone said, well, why is that? And the manager explained, well, David is coming from a Christian worldview. And that person turned around and said, that's fantastic. I'm really into spirituality. I believe in the power of crystals. And I remember that experience for me was one, first of all, of elation. Oh, here is somebody who initially when they started talking is open to or not caught up in this current worldview that faith makes no sense. And then one of disillusionment when I realized there was a comparison being made to the reasonableness of believing in Jesus Christ to that of believing in the power of crystals. And I don't want to appear to be arrogant or to be dismissive of that belief, but I do think it's important for us to work to a place where we can compare worldviews reasonably and rationally. So if we can put up this first slide, that word up there, that idea of presuppositional, it's a big word. It just means the assumptions we make before we apply reason. And so where you start from makes a difference to as you reason where you end up. And we can look at a number of different uh, suppositions or presumptions that people have that lead to certain worldviews. If you believe in Yahweh only, your worldview is Jewish. If you believe in Allah, you're an Islam. If you uh, believe in a culturally Trinitarian God, you're a cultural Christian. If you're 
if you believe in pantheistic spirits, perhaps you're a Muti or a Hindu or one of the other uh, religions that have that view. If you don't believe in God at all, you're probably a humanist or an atheist. And if you believe in any God, then you're a pluralist or a, a postmodernist. And of course, if you believe in the true Trinitarian God, then you are a born-again Christian. And all of those worldviews are, are based on the assumptions that are on the presupposition. And we can test those worldviews. We can go as people who are created in the image of God, who is reasonable and rational, we can apply that characteristic of God to testing those worldviews. And some of them hold up more than others to the testing of reasonableness. Now, it's worth uh, knowing that the born-again Christian uh, perspective uh, has an external understanding of where those assumptions come from. And if we can look at the next slide. The Christian worldview, the born-again Christian worldview, believes that it's the Holy Spirit that makes us come to the belief in the true Trinitarian God, which then leads to us developing a born-again Christian worldview. And that those other ones are cultural. And again, we can test the validity, the internal consistency and the external consistency, the rational and the reasonableness of the cause and, the pre and that leads to the assumptions and then the worldview. So it's important for us then to say that not all worldviews are created equally from a reasonable point of view. We can rationally test the internal consistency. Does this worldview make sense within itself, or does it contradict itself? And from an external point of view, one question you could ask is, does this worldview explain all the other worldviews' existence? That would be an external question that we can use to test. And one of the claims that Christianity makes is that it, Jesus Christ is the only way, the one and the only way. That exclusive, exclusivity often produces uh, reactions in people. One of the reactions is that exclusivity means we are, it comes with the assumption of being better than. Recently we went to South Carolina, and when we were going through the airport, first thing that happened is you were either the pre-screen TSA elite, or you're the stand in the line forever to get your bags checked. And I really resented the exclusive nature of this system that put me in the really, really long queue while all these people just trotted through and got to their plane without having to queue up. And, and I don't know if they actually thought they were better than me, but I can tell you I felt less than them. And I think this happens in other ways too. We have these reactions when we see these exclusive uh, systems being set up. I don't know what your reaction is to really elite golf clubs or gated communities or, or things where certain people seem to have privilege or access that other people don't have. That exclusivity, depending on whether you're in the in or the out, can either get up your nose or, or make you perhaps feel a little superior or better than. So that exclusivity, the idea of exclusivity, often comes with this idea of better than. And the other idea that exclusivity comes with is the idea of intellectually intolerant. That if you believe that you have the exclusive truth, that's going to lead to you uh, forcing that truth on other people or oppressing other people with that truth or abusing other people with that truth. And there are examples of this, certainly religious examples of this. The 30-year war from 1968 to 1998 in Northern Ireland 
where the Catholics and the Protestants blew each other up, shot each other. That was, it was just a, a horrible, violent situation in Northern Ireland. There's the example of Jonestown in 1978, where Jim Jones got 900 people to drink the poisonous Kool-Aid in an act of mass suicide, a, an, an oppressive act of mass suicide, which was devastating. And an example of Muti murders. Muti is a type of witch doctor religion where they believe that grinding up children and putting them into magic or, or special potions is one of the ways of healing and connecting with the, with, uh, connecting with the spirits. So we can say that exclusivity certainly can cause an intellectual and practical intolerance. But what about Jesus' claim to be exclusive? Now Jesus claims, and we're going to see as we delve into this text, two ways that he is exclusive. He's claiming in a salvific way, I am the only way to be saved. Jesus Christ says himself, I am the only way to be saved. And we'll dig into that. And he also goes on to say, I am the only way to know God. Revelation. I am the only way that God is revealed. I am the only way to be saved. Two massive exclusivity claims. Salvation and revelation. And we're going to look at those, but we're going to ask the question as we look at them, should this lead or does this lead to Christians feeling better than, superior, or does it lead to, and or does it lead to Christians being intellectually and practically intolerant? So two big areas in this text that come out is Jesus' radical exclusive claim to be the only way to have salvation and the only way to know him, salvation and revelation. So let's jump into the salvation passage. I'm going to read this again um, because Jesus is making it really clear here. This is not ambiguous, and I know if you go into certain Christian contexts today, uh, people feel uncomfortable because of the social pressure on us to say that Jesus is just a way. But the reality is Jesus himself makes it clear that he is the only way. He makes that very clear in verse 6. I am the truth and the I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you know the Father. This claim is based on these verses 1 to 6, which I'm, I'm going to read out. But before I do, I want to give you the context. They've already washed the feet. They've already done, this is in the Passion Week, they've already done uh, the, the Lord's Supper for the first time. And Jesus is preparing his disciples for when he uh, is going to be crucified. And he's talking here, interestingly, do not let your hearts be troubled. Twice before this, in 14 and 13, he has been troubled himself, one, by the fact that he has to go to the cross, two, by the fact that his disciples are going to betray him. But here, instead of focusing on his trouble, he focuses on the disciples. Do not be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. My Father's house has many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you also may be where I am. Now, the temptation when we read this is not to remember that this is just before the crucifixion, that this is just after the Lord's Supper, just after the feet washing, that this is moving towards the cross. 
And I get this image when I read this passage in isolation that Jesus is going to fluff the pillows, pull back the bedspread, put a nice little chocolate in the bed, wherever this room in heaven is. But that's not what's going on here. He's using this idea of a house as a metaphor. My father's house has many rooms, and I will go and prepare a place for you. How does Christ prepare a place for us in that house? He goes to the cross. He goes to the cross, and then he says, and then I will come back and get you. So he's talking specifically here about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross to prepare a place for us in the coming kingdom and his return in judgment at the end times. Very appropriate and relevant for the disciples at this moment between uh, the Lord's Supper and the crucifixion. And... It means that we need to understand the meaning of the cross. Every, even these disciples who Jesus was teaching, they deny Jesus with their lips and their actions, and so do we. And I don't know if you've ever been in one of those moments where you don't deny Jesus, where you, you don't deny him with your lips and your actions, and you feel that elated sense of, oh, this is what I'm going to be like finally in the coming kingdom. This little moment that I just experienced of me being faithful is what, when I'm fully redeemed, I'm going to be like. But most of us don't spend enough or, or much of our time in that place of faithfulness. Most of us deny Jesus with our lips and our actions almost on a constant basis. And so by preparing a place for you, he means dying on the cross. He means living the life that we should have lived and die in the death that we should have died. Jesus is basically saying, you can stand where I am and accept the righteousness that I lived and I'll stand where you're standing and accept the condemnation that you deserve. And there's a literal swapping of places here. And there's a sense in which when we hear this, okay, only Jesus And Jesus is claiming that here. Only Jesus is capable of being that substitution. Only Jesus has that righteousness. None of us are capable of standing before God without Jesus standing in for us and taking the consequences of our constant denial with our lips and our actions. And so we get this type of exclusivity. There's only one way. And that's for Jesus to stand in one way of salvation, for Jesus to stand in our place. But notice here also that there are many rooms. One way, but many rooms. And all of a sudden, the exclusivity is this idea of one way. The inclusivity is the idea of many rooms. He's not saying, in this kingdom, there's four rooms. And you guys have to fight it out. And the best four Christians will get a spot in the kingdom of God. That's not what he's saying. He said there are many rooms. There is plenty of rooms. There is room in the kingdom of God. It's not exclusive in the sense that you have to be the best Christian or the most worshipful Christian or you have to be the smartest Christian or the most wise Christian. No, it's saying saying there are many rooms. It's not exclusive in that sense. It's exclusive in that Jesus is the only way to get in there. But it's not exclusive, it's inclusive in the space there is in the kingdom of God. Yesterday, my family, Patty and Abby, we went for a hike. And it was into this uh, national park area up in New Hampshire that had multiple paths from different car parks into this big river area which had all these paths that crisscrossed in the middle. 
So you, you parked your car in one of the entrance points, then you walk down the, the path into the big area at the bottom, and then you could go pretty much all over the place on different paths. And Abby had the map, and she was leading us on the way. And then at the end, we said, we need to get back to the car. Which is the way back to the car, Abby? So Abby said, this path, this path is the way back to the car. Now, Patty and I could have said, no, in a pluralist world, I want this to be the path. And Abby could, Patty could have said, no, in a pluralist world, this one could be the path back. And someone else, if we had a, par, a car full of people, we could have all chosen a different path to a different car park and said, they're all valid. All of these paths will take us back to the car, which, of course, is nonsense. The exclusivity is there is one path. But all of us can walk along the right path. So is this really exclusive or is this inclusive truth? There is one way but many rooms. That's just the fact. And it shouldn't be offensive. Now, can we put up that slide again? The current worldview will tell us that any God, any pathway is a way of getting to God. And I'd like to point out the internal inconsistency in that position. You see, that's like saying, any path will take us back to the car. Any path. And here's the thing. The problem with that position is, that bottom one, which is the predominant worldview in the culture that we live, is that the Yahweh only, the Allah only, the cultural Trinitarian God way, the pantheistic spirits way, and the atheist way, as well as the true Trinitarian God way, all say that's not true. So the irony of the assumption of the any God, any path leads to God way is that all the other paths say that that's not true. And that's a belief, that's a presumption. And yet it doesn't hold up consistently with the other views. So we could say that that, that view that any path leads to God is externally inconsistent because all of the paths deny that. So the first way that Jesus claims to be exclusive is that he says, I am the only way you can be saved. The second way is he said, I'm the only way that you can know God. And my goodness, Jesus makes this really clear. I'm going to read this, but I want you to hear it. He says the same thing again and again. He repeats it five times, and he's really trying to make the point. I am the only revelation of who God is. Let me read it from verse 7 through to verse 11, and listen to it. If you really know me, you'll know the, my Father as well, number one. If you really know me, you'll know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Lord, says Philip, show us the Father, that, we'll, that will be enough for us. Jesus answers, do you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you for such a long time? Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father twice. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me three times? The words I say to you do not speak I do not speak of my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work four times. Believe me when I say I am in the Father and the Father is in me five times. Five times. If Jesus wasn't trying to make this really clear, the revelation of who the Father is is only through me. An exclusive claim again. You can only know the Father through me. If you've seen me, if you know me, you know the Father. Jesus is the image 
of the invisible God. Jesus, in fact, is God, and it's only the incarnated God in the form of Jesus that can lead us back to, to God. Now, this is really interesting because he is not claiming that you need to have a philosophy or a theology. Now, from knowing Jesus, that relational knowing of Jesus, you will, of course, develop a philosophy and a theology for how to live your life. But ultimately, it's about knowing the person, the values of the person. And it's not a religion in the sense that if you perform all of these behaviors, you will know the Father. Now, of course, from a relationship with Jesus, we would expect a whole lot of behaviors to follow, but it is a relationship with the person, that personal relationship with Jesus Christ that Jesus is saying is the only way to know the Father. And then we ask the question then, does this lead us, does this type of personal relationship with Jesus Christ lead us to become like the Jonestown suicide pact or the Muti grinding up of children or to the uh, conflict in Northern Ireland? And the answer, of course, is, well, that really depends, doesn't it? It depends on the character of who Jesus Christ is. And I would say that when we look at people who are faithful in following Jesus Christ, when we see them reflecting the values of Jesus Christ as he is revealed to us by the Holy Spirit in Scripture through the Word incarnate now in the form of Scripture, we find that that is not how he manifests himself. Consider the Amish. How many of you would sit there and say the Amish are an incredibly violent and oppressive people? Out to, no. Their faith in Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus Christ manifests itself in a way where they are not manipulative. They are not coercive. Now, that doesn't mean that as we live our lives, we will not be manipulated. We will not be coerced. In fact, I really appreciate the fact that every time Gloria comes up and prays, she prays for the persecuted saints. Those who say in places around the world where... Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, when they say that out loud, not in a coercive way, not in a manipulative way, not to force anyone to believe, not to say you have to walk on this path back to the car, just this is the only path that leads to the car. When they say that out loud, when they pray for the people they're with, when they ask for the Holy Spirit to come and work in those hearts, those who are threatened by that can persecute Christians. And we need to pray for and continue to pray for persecuted Christians who are being faithful because of their relationship to Jesus Christ. But a faithful relationship with Jesus Christ does not lead to arrogance or intolerance or oppression or forcing people to choose. In fact, we extend the same grace to other people that Jesus extended to us. So a born-again Christian worldview holds that God reveals God, that God the Father saves through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. We saw that in verses 2 and 3. I'm going to prepare. I am coming back. And it's the Holy Spirit which changes our heart to see that. So the work is Christ on the cross and the Holy Spirit in our hearts. God the Father revealed through the living word of Christ. We saw that in verses 6, 7, 9, and 10. Jesus again. It was me. It was I. It was I. If you know me. Again, the Holy Spirit makes come alive makes Christ come alive through the Word. And so we have these so Holy Spirit and Christ again in the form of the Word. So it's not us. There is no room here for intellectual arrogance or intolerance. It's not a truth claim 
that rests on our assertion, or will survive because we get out there and politically or, uh, or if get out there and fight for it in a military sense or however. It doesn't depend on us. It's a truth claim that rests solely on the work of Christ and the Holy Spirit. There is no room for intolerance or arrogance, and we shouldn't try to, and we can't force the world to be Christians. But we can and we should explain the hope within us. We should, as we look at that map which says this is the only way out of this reserve back to the car, this is the only way to know God, we should be telling people that. In fact, we should be doing that because we have that same love for the world, for the people around us, for our neighbors, for our friends, for our families that Jesus has. And so we say, I want to tell them about Jesus. I want to share the hope within me. And here's the challenge for you. How many of you, because you know the person of Jesus Christ and you have internalized how much he loves the world, how many of you pray on a daily basis for those who don't know him? Pray for the Holy Spirit to work in their lives. Pray for opportunities to share the gospel with them so that the Holy Spirit can work through you. How many of you actively and daily pray for your friends and your neighbors and your family that don't know Jesus Christ? How many of you do that? How many of you, the question I think that was asked really poignantly by Lissy and Kyle is, if Jesus Christ really is the only way, are we responding uh, to that? So all worldviews, if we can have that final slide come up, all worldviews are not equal. You can compare, and we should compare with reason, claims, and ask how reasoned are they, how rigorous are they, how historically accurate are they. And Jesus' exclusivity claim should not produce a mindset of better than Christians. It, in fact, should do the opposite. It should create an incredible humility in us. It's not my work. I am privileged to be used by the Holy Spirit, and I, I have humility and I have respect because it's only the work of the Holy Spirit. Now, I can be used by the Holy Spirit, and I want to love the world like Christ, the person I know loves the world but I do not have to force or coerce. I don't have to be manipulative. And, it's, and Jesus' exclusivity certainly does not uh, justify any intellectual intolerance. As we look around with the deep love that we have because we know Jesus Christ, because we know that person, because the Holy Spirit has worked in us both in terms of salvation and revelation, as we start to develop a deeper appreciation for that person of Jesus Christ through his word, and we look at our neighbors and our friends and our family, do you see them, do you picture them on judgment day when Jesus comes back looking across at you and saying, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you tell me there was only one way? Why didn't you tell me? We extend... Peace, which is a much bigger concept than tolerance. We don't force people to walk on the only true path, but we certainly need 
to make it clear. We certainly need to reveal that as an act of love. We certainly need to proclaim uh, the one true way of Christ. We extend that same grace, but we also tell the truth. We don't want people walking back to car parks where the cars aren't parked. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, you claim to be exclusive, and you are exclusive, but you are also very inclusive. There are plenty of rooms in your house. One way, but plenty of rooms. An inclusive truth. Father, help us to realize as we go through this series the reasonableness of that inclusive truth. Father, we are thankful that it is the work of the Holy Spirit, that it is not our religious practice, it is not our intellectual or philosophical or theological understanding, but it is the person of Jesus Christ as revealed in Revelation through your Word and your Holy Spirit that gives us insight into to who the person of Jesus Christ is. Help us to people who, because, because we know you, Jesus, and we know how much you loved, that we love those around us enough to declare not aggressively, not boldly, not manipulatively, but in love, the true, the one and only true path. Give us boldness and courage as well as grace. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.